This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Good afternoon and welcome to the Friday edition of Trumpet Hour this last day of March 2023. I'm Philip Nice. We are heading into April already, and as temperatures are warming up here in the Northern Hemisphere, so too is human nature. A lot to cover. Some things you've heard about, some things you've overlooked. Uh, With all that's going on, we'll fill you in. As always, we have our four trumpet writers from thetrumpet.com watching the four corners of the globe. We have Jeremiah Jacques. Great to be here. Andrew Miller. Hello. Richard Palmer. And Mihailo Zekic. Good day. Mr. Miller, you watch the Anglo-America region... United States, Britain, and the English-speaking countries mostly. What have been some of the main headlines this week? Well, it's actually been a pretty busy week in the the American region. Uh, we started off, they had uh, like literally dozens of um, people killed in Mississippi uh, in a, just a slew of tornadoes. Uh, I mean, I think, I think the one big one was probably one of the third, I think the third biggest uh, tornado they've actually ever had in the United States. Uh, they also had a staffer from Senator Rand Paul uh, stabbed multiple times as he was uh, leaving a Mexican restaurant in the Washington, D.C. area. And the Scottish National Party uh, elected a Muslim first minister, now making Scotland the first Western nation uh, to be led by a Muslim. And we also know that after all the back and forth, the will they, won't they, and the grabbing as many headlines as possible, not by mistake, a grand jury and a district attorney in New York City have actually indicted President Donald Trump on charges of falsifying business records. American politics was thrown into complete chaos, perhaps permanently, about three hours ago, when a grand jury in Manhattan, one of the most liberal cities in America, a place where 80% voted for Joe Biden in the last election, decided to indict Biden's political opponent in the upcoming election, the Republican frontrunner, a man who leads by 30 points in polls, Donald Trump. Donald Trump is the first former president of the United States ever to be indicted. So no matter what happens next, we can be certain there is no coming back from this moment. This, of course, is major news. Uh, It's even more major than, than most people realize. But when news like this breaks... It does take attention away from other developments that is largely by design. So what are a lot of people overlooking, Mr. Miller, as this news about the Trump indictment broke on Thursday evening? I think one of the the biggest stories the uh, the media is deliberately trying to get people to overlook this week uh, is just this uh, trans movement attack on Christians and um, this is something that at the beginning of the week, I'm sure everyone's already heard, they had um, uh, a trans shooter, uh, Audrey Hale, she's 28 years old, uh, a, a woman who's been uh, masquerading as a man for, for some time now, uh, walked into a, a Christian school that she used to go to in Nashville, Tennessee, um, shot three children, three nine-year-olds, and three adults uh, before the, the Nashville police came in and, and killed her. And uh, it definitely wasn't, um, 
a, what you'd call a, a crime of passion or something you did in the heat of the moment. She had uh, seven guns she'd purchased legally at local local gun shops. Uh, she'd mapped out the school. Uh, she's had a long manifesto as to her reasons to why she's been doing this uh, that the FBI has and still hasn't released. Uh, and so this is definitely something that she'd planned for for some time. And we're, like I said, we're a lot of people are waiting for that manifesto. But uh, uh, given uh, a lot of the circumstances and what we know about um, this woman's life, it looks like she deliberately picked this Christian school so she went that she went to uh, as an act of, of violence against uh, Christians whom she views as transphobic. Uh, that's actually been uh, the, the shooting actually because it killed six people got quite a bit of media attention but kind of like this simmering <laughs> uh, this simmering violence against Christians by uh, transgender people is something that's been there for a while and hasn't been getting much media attention I dug into it a little bit this week uh, found uh, actually a video game. It's titled uh, Turfenstein 3D uh, that was released um, two months before the attack. Uh, but the, the entire point of the video game is the it's, it's like a first-person shooter game where the protagonist is a transgender person uh, going around killing uh, Christians and other people who believe that transgenderism is a mental illness. And hasn't gotten much uh, much attention, but it's like I said, this is the some of the type of stuff that apparently it's it hasn't been taken off shelves or anything like that. So it's operating with tacit endorsement of law enforcement. This is part of a larger trend, as as you're getting at there. Not that um, every uh, school shooter is is a, a sexual deviant, but this has come at the timing of this attack is remarkable there's there has been planned a trans day of rage uh, i believe it was this saturday i just now saw they finally decided to call it off but you have a school shooting and at a presbyterian covenant school a presbyterian christian school in the heartland nashville and you have people uh, I saw a uh, the a spokeswoman for the governor of Arizona had to resign recently for posting a picture of someone holding two pistols and saying this is some, something to the effect of this is what we're like when we see transphobes. So if you're afraid of people like that, we'll shoot you. Was was the message there? I, I've seen people wearing uh, shirts that say or pictures of people say, wear shirts that say. Uh, protect trans kids with a knife <laughs> in between the the words so and then I, we've seen even some pictures of i don't know if you would call them militias but gun clubs designed for transsexual people so the armed violent threat is is not just the point is the armed violent threat is not just limited to this one person at this one school this week right right and that um 
the uh, top aide for Arizona Governor Katie Hobbs uh, had to resign mainly due to the timing of her tweet. I mean, she she made this this tweet um, about like trans people having to defend themselves with guns from uh, transphobes right in the wake of this transgender person killing all these Christians. But I think if she, uh, it was a bad tweet at any time, but if she'd have made it another time, she may have been able to cap, keep her, her job with that. Because like you said, this is, um, this is like one of the most shocking things of the story to me is uh, the media reaction to it. I mean, I've, I think I've made the point before is that you can usually tell that like if a shooter's a, a straight white male, uh, the media narrative will be white supremacy. Uh, and if it's anyone other than a straight white male, the media narratives focuses on gun control. This is really, I think, the first case I've seen where you have uh, a number of liberal networks, NPR included, that's normally uh, against gun possession and by anyone except maybe a government agent, uh, coming out and really talking about, in the wake of this tragedy, coming out and talking about how like, well, okay, well, trans people are probably the exception. Like they actually need Second Amendment rights. We're taking the Second Amendment rights away from everybody else. But trans people need Second Amendment rights to uh, to protect themselves. And uh, I guess if we, <laughs> we have time, actually, we can probably play the NPR clip now. But this is actually what you're about to hear is a clip that aired on NPR um, about... Uh, a trans militia meeting to train with guns to uh, protect themselves against Christians. A series of mass shootings targeting LGBTQ spaces, a political climate that's allowed for anti-trans rhetoric and threats to flourish. It's all left some queer people wondering if the best way to protect themselves is to take up arms. NHPR's Todd Bookman joined a monthly gathering of a gun group that sees firearms as key to their own self-defense. On a recent Sunday morning, the parking lot of Patuckaway State Park in southeastern New Hampshire is filling up with hikers. There's also a different crew packing up warm clothes and weapons. Thank you all for coming to uh, Rainbow Reload. Today's uh, organizer is Finn Smith. Like everybody else in this story, they've requested some level of anonymity because they fear for their safety. Yeah, I recognize the temperature is freezing and this is not the most comfortable, but if it's raining, we're training. If it's snowing, we're going. Groups like Rainbow Reload exist around the country, often called pink pistol clubs. It's a place for experts and the gun curious to practice and improve their shooting. But this goes beyond hobby. There's a practical goal here, to prepare and protect themselves. If the world is dangerous, then you have to be dangerous back. And that very much has pushed me into um, where I am now. After giving a safety talk, Smith and a half dozen others start hiking down a snow-covered trail. With long guns strapped over their shoulders, you can imagine the looks they get from dog walkers. One of the members, Sharon, recently transitioned. And I went from concealed carry every once in a while when I was sort of feeling it to every single day because reading the news, having a few experiences, realizing that I've gone from old cis male, white, upper middle class, really no, no real fears about anything to there are people that just looking at me will want to hurt me. There's that individual fear, fear of what may happen simply existing in public. But for some, there's also a more organized and ominous threat, including a neo-Nazi group now active in New England that's targeted trans people. 
This is Jamie, who's carrying a new pistol she's hoping to break in today. There's been an uptick in hate crimes. There's been an uptick in groups that have been protesting drag story times and drag shows, and it felt like I needed to learn how to protect myself. There are local rod and gun clubs where she could shoot, but with her leftist political leanings and being a trans woman, she thinks she wouldn't be welcomed. And having to hide your identity when you're shooting with a group of people isn't really a great time. After hiking in for about a mile, the group veers off trail, deep into the woods, until they spot a clearing. Start setting up right here. While Smith marks off a lane for shooting, others collect down branches and start a fire. Then the range goes hot and people take turns on the line. The experienced work with the less experienced. Everybody shares guns, they geek out on scopes. There's not a ton of data on LGBTQ gun ownership, but a UCLA study from 2020 found that about 21% of lesbian, gay, and bisexual people live in a house with a firearm. That's compared to 36% of heterosexual adults. In terms of partisan breakdown, a recent Pew study found that about one in five self-identified Democrats own a gun, compared to nearly half of Republicans. Rainbow Reload is not a political group. It doesn't advocate for any gun policies. And amongst the members, there are a variety of opinions. Do you consider yourself on the political left? Uh, I mean, if you go far enough left, you get your guns back. If there's a stereotype that everyone who isn't a conservative opposes gun rights, Guardian is here to scramble that. Obviously a fake name, Guardian says he's fearful of his family being targeted. His hat, worn backwards, says, make fascists afraid again. He's been around guns his whole life and sees them as a way to protect queer people and queer spaces. And I want people to feel safe to be who they are. It's not a, a matter of politics. It's a matter of whether or not you think certain people should get to live and be their genuine selves. After a few hours, people walk around picking up the spent shell casings out of the snow. Does anybody have anything else that they wanted to practice that they didn't do uh, today? Folks hang around the fire and then start the hike out. The guns over their shoulders, a source of security in a world that feels full of threats. For NHPR News, I'm Todd Bookman. Yeah, so you just heard that phrase there. It's like it's a dangerous world and you have to be dangerous back, uh, which is something, <laughs> a phrase you might hear at like an NRA rally uh, all the time. But this is like traditional uh, people need to arm themselves to protect themselves uh, and NPR is endorsing it only because it's for the the trans community. And th this actually, that interview uh, came out just before the mass shooting. So it shows that this has definitely been the idea that the media has been telling trans people that they need to uh, arm themselves and get ready to fight back uh, against Christians. And when the FBI finally releases this manifesto, if they don't doctor it too much, uh, we're probably going to get a pretty good look at um, some of the, uh, the dangerous effect that rhetoric like that causes. Uh, taking a bigger picture overview in the show notes, we'll put a, an article from our editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Fleury, The Real Solution to Mass Shootings and Violence, which covers the... Uh, the spiritual angle to um, to mass shootings in the uh, in the United States because um, the, the murder rate overall may be lower than it was in the 80s, uh, but the mass shooting rate is higher than it's ever been in American history. The real solution to mass shootings and violence. The real solution to mass shootings and violence. Check that out on thetrumpet.com. 
Richard Palmer watches the Europe region. And Mr. Palmer, what has been going on in your region this week? Well, we've continued to have some pretty dramatic protests like we talked about last time. So in France, the protests have uh, kind of spread out now and they're really taking off in the smaller towns in the countryside. Some towns you're having half the population come out and protest. So Emmanuel Macron is facing some serious opposition still to his style of government. Germany had that strike that we talked about last time on Monday. It ended up pretty much shutting the entire country down. You had hundreds of thousands of people having their flights delayed. Germany's biggest airports just closed for the day. Ports, railways, buses. So major disruption there. Both of those countries showing signs of uh, economic strain, political strain, uh, just like we talked about last time. And a bit more say positive news for Germany. King Charles made that the site of his uh, first overseas visit after he couldn't make it to France. And he was in, he was very well received. He became the first monarch in a long, long time to address the German or parliament. Queen Elizabeth never did that. I think it's the first head of foreign head of state since World War Two. He spoke to them in, in pretty fluent German for the most part. And um, the press, the part they seem to love it here in Britain. We kind of loved that they loved it. Uh, and it's um, it, it, it's led to closer ties between these two countries, a, a very prophetic trend as we watch for Britain to put its trust in Germany. But and the main story I want to talk about is one that absolutely shockingly to it, to me, this is an insane story that is just fascinating, interesting, astonishing, even with Bible prophecy aside. And yet I have seen this nowhere apart from the Trumpet website, uh, and that is the Dutch army is gone. The Dutch army is now a branch of the German army. They've fully submitted themselves to the, the German army. I mentioned this was nowhere. I had a, had a chat to one of my colleagues who's Dutch. He went and checked the major Dutch newspapers. It wasn't even there. That's remarkable. Uh, they weren't even talking about now, this happened on Thursday, and this was something that was pre-planned. So, and I think some of the Dutch news sites, they did cover it when it was announced. But still, that's a pretty big milestone to be handing over your country. So th this, is, this is something that has happened gradually. Uh, so a few years ago, the, the Dutch were kind of thinking about, well, we need to cut costs. We can't afford our military. Um, we might have to get rid of a whole bunch of tanks. Someone had the bright idea, oh, wait, maybe instead of cut, cutting, cutting, getting rid of all of our tanks, we could submit uh, one of our tank brigades to the German army, and that will save us a bunch of money. We'll still get some tanks. So they did that with one brigade. Then they did that with the second brigade. They only have three active duty brigades. And so then what happened this week was that the third brigade came along, submitted to the German army as well, and there's nothing left. So uh, a German will command these dutch forces yes some of them will be stationed in germany as well uh they're kind of just fully integrated now into the german command structure I, really this is something there's a there's been a long game here they've been training in the Netherlands, even during the cold war if you were in the dutch army there's a good chance you'd go do your training in germany and, and they would work closely together uh but yeah, I think it is still pretty astonishing to see this. I think it's also interesting just to see the way the goalposts kind of changed. This started as a money-saving initiative at first. The justification, though, for having that 3rd Battalion join wasn't really cost-saving. It was more, at least from the German side, they kind of focused on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. You know, it was exactly what you've been hearing on, on this show every week, what um, 
was it Rafaro last week or the week before was talking about with Russia's invaded Europe uh, and Ukraine and it's frightening Europe. And this is one of those responses where Germany and the Netherlands are deciding we need to make a, a strong, we need a strong united European military in order to confront Russia. Here's something that we can do. Uh, and so it's also, a, this is about a different reason. It's not just cost saving. It's about creating a more effective European military force. And that's what we've been watching for. So at this point, you are telling us that the German military commands the Dutch army. The, the German military is now a multinational military. It is. And more than just the Dutch. Uh, the, the Czechs. There's, I think it's one of their two combat brigades is in the Dutch army. There's a Romanian, um, I'm not quite sure if that's brigade strength, but a sub substantial portion of Romanians that are in the process of coming into that du that German military. So, yeah, it is. And Ursula von der Leyen, she's now the European Commission president. She was the German defense minister who got the ball rolling on a lot of these. And she, she, she said, this is the plan. We're going to start combining. It's a fascinating kind of focus from Germany where they kind of gave up on these big projects to create an EU military and to have these eye-catching things that uh, that get everybody excited. We're just like, look, it's too hard. We've been arguing over this for years. Let's do something practical that we can do now. And we, we're really struggling to sit down with 27 countries and create an EU army. So let's make the German army an EU army, and I'll do it by sitting down with this one guy. And now I'll go and I'll sit down with this other one guy. And we can build it bit by bit that way. And now you could say there is an EU army. It's called the Bundeswehr. Exactly. It is you know, three, four different nations working together. And this, this once you have a, a, a framework in place, a successful framework for integrating uh, one military into the German military and then the next, uh, it's not too hard to see integrating uh, additional national militaries into the german military where can trumpet listeners go to learn a little bit more about this yeah it's not hard to see that integration coming at all and another way that you could see the ukraine crisis uh accelerate this is a lot of countries are moving onto more similar hardware during the ukraine crisis you're getting a lot of eastern european countries getting rid of their soviet era weaponry and buying nato standards one of the reasons why this could come together so quickly for these countries is they all use Leopard 2 tanks. Uh, and so I think this is one outcome of that Ukraine crisis. But we we have an article, uh, Europe's Underground Army, which uh, Josue Michels and I put together a few years ago that goes through some of these latest developments and goes through this Bible prophecy. You know, we talk about Revelation 17 quite a lot on this show. It's really a key linchpin prophecy that talks about this multinational empire there are 10 kings and it says they give their power and their strength to one overall empire so it's quite clearly war making is a core part of these countries coming together and then you look at uh, revelation 13 it's a parallel passage people around the world are looking at this war making power and saying well who can make who can make war with this with this beast power so the military is a core part of this power that's coming it's 10 nations it's not 27 and so we can see that being built before your eyes in very practical, real terms. And it's exactly what Herbert W. Armstrong talked about for years. And uh, you know, it, it's happening right now for those that will, will see it. Well, thank you for that, Mr. Palmer. Keep watching that European military for us. It's, a, it's just amazing to try to imagine a 21st century multinational military in 
the uh, the the continent. If that comes and when that comes to to full life, uh, it'll it'll change the world for sure. Jeremiah Jacques watches the Asia region for us. Uh, Mr. Jacques, a lot of people absorbed in in North American headlines and uh, maybe overlooking Asia. What's been happening in Asia this week? Yes, another uh, another big week, specifically in Russia, with uh, all kinds of major developments happening there. Uh, first, there was a leak of some Russian intelligence documents showing that President Vladimir Putin wanted, quote, total cleansing of Ukraine with house-to-house terror, end quote. So some, some uh, really chilling orders there from the very top. Then another big story was essentially a release of the latest data on abducted Ukrainian children, and it shows that the official count is now north of 19,000. So a confirmed 19,000 Ukrainian children have now been abducted and forcibly deported to Russia. We actually had an in-depth report about this practice on the March 29th episode of Trumpet Hour, if anyone would like to check that out. And then there was uh, another bombshell yesterday when an American reporter for the Wall Street Journal was arrested in Russia by the state security service. They accused him of being a spy and they yanked him out of a restaurant mid-meal. So this marks the first time that a U.S. correspondent has been detained on spying accusations since the Cold War. So, you know, just a, a serious escalation there. Those were all very big stories, but still more significant than any of that, I think, is that Russian President Vladimir Putin announced that some of Russia's nuclear weapons will soon be deployed to Belarus. This was on Saturday. And Putin said that uh, Russia has already transferred nuclear-capable missiles to Belarus and will begin training Belarusian personnel to, to use them in the coming days. He also said that uh, 10 different Belarusian aircraft are now being prepared to launch Russia's nuclear missiles. Those preparations should be complete by July, he said. So if Russia follows through on these plans, it'll mark the first time since the mid-90s that it has based any of its nuclear weapons outside the country. So it is just uh, quite a chilling development. This is the kind of thing you do once a war is actually underway. <laughs> Deploy your most dangerous weapons across your borders into into other countries. What uh, what did Putin, did, did he make any remarks uh, announcing this? He did. Yeah, he, he made an announcement about it. And he basically said that he's just doing what the United States already does. You know, he talked about America stationing some of its nuclear weapons in Belgium, Germany, Italy, I think the Netherlands and Turkey as well. We have some there. Um, and he said that he's just following suit. So his quote was, we're basically doing the same thing they've been doing. They have allies in certain countries and they train their carriers. They train their crews. We are going to do the same thing. This is exactly what Alexander Lukashenko has asked for, end quote. So Lukashenko, of course, is the president of Belarus. He's a man who's entirely in Putin's pocket. So really, Putin can put whatever words he wants to in Lukashenko's mouth. But uh, but yeah, that was Putin's justification. America does it. And so we will, too. Well, that makes the whole world a little more dangerous this week, with uh, especially with the world's most dangerous weapons involved we are talking about nuclear weapons here that's right yes these of course are these unfathomably destructive nuclear weapons and uh there is another related bit of news actually on wednesday russia's deputy foreign minister said russia has also now stopped 
all nuclear-related notifications to the United States. So before this, the U.S. and Russia would notify each other about various weapons tests, about the sizes of their nuclear stockpiles, things like that. That was under the terms of what is called the New START Treaty. But Russia suspended its participation just last month in that treaty, and now it's emphasizing that all the days of communication and relaying information between the world's two largest nuclear nations, those days are over. So it is worrying. It's, it's a troubling development. And I think when you put this alongside Russia's decision to base nuclear weapons in Belarus, you know, outside its borders for the first time, it all just shows, I think, how rapidly the global security is deteriorating. And this comes after, of course, Vladimir Putin has developed some fearsome weapons pulled out of the uh, short and medium range a moratorium on on nuclear ballistic missiles so the world is definitely getting more and more dangerous in terms of the nuclear situation for more on this you can go to the trumpet.com and the literature tab the trumpet.com slash literature and look for nuclear armageddon is quote at the door Nuclear Armageddon is at the door, and also Russia to station nuclear weapons in Belarus. That's our latest coverage on this particular event, Russia to station nuclear weapons in Belarus. Mihailo Zekic joins us from the studio in England. He watches the Middle East for you each week. Mihailo, what's been going on in the Middle East region? Well, quite a bit of big news. Um, This week, Saudi Arabia became a dialogue partner in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. That's uh, China's um, main, shall we say, anti-Western economic bloc. We've covered on this program quite a bit about Saudi Arabia's pivot away from America and towards countries like China. Um, Also, Egypt did a little revising of its uh, tourist visa policy. It is now allowing Iranians to come in with a visa on arrival for tourist reasons and certain destinations before Iran was one of the nations that had the hardest time getting into Egypt. And now that's starting to change. We have a trends article on the web, on the Trumpet website that talks about why Iranian-Egyptian relations are important. But the biggest story by far would be a dramatic escalation in the protests in Israel. Now, we've covered these on the on the program before. They've been going on since January. I've deliberately not talked about them every week in review program simply because uh-huh. for a while it was more of the same. Um, as of this week, uh, that's all. Uh, the whole equation has changed. Metaphorically, you could say the crisis situation in Israel has gone down a level in DEF CON. So um, on Saturday, the Israeli defense minister, Yoav Gallant, gave a message in solidarity of what the protesters are aiming for. For some backstory, uh, the protests in Israel are against Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his controversial judicial reform plan. A lot of protesters are taking, or people in Israel are taking this seriously. There's even reservists that are refusing call-up duty. And Gallant, he looked at that, he's saying, okay, now that the army's protesting as well this is a national security issue i'm going to publicly say we need to change this and netanyahu on sunday uh fired him basically for uh basically insubordination and this was like a catalyst with the protests this sent them all into uh, uh everybody on the streets in in tel aviv and jerusalem and haifa into a fury um, on Sunday, Monday, they estimated that there may have been about 600,000 people on the streets in Israel nationwide protesting. And then on Monday, 
uh, Netanyahu backtracked and said that he was going to postpone his judicial reform plan. He was supposed to put in at least one piece of legislation through the Knesset this week. The Knesset's going into recess in April, and he wanted to get something done before then. And he hasn't abandoned his goals per se yet. He's saying he's just postponing them, but he did uh, hit the brakes, so to speak, on his reform program. And Gallant, for his part, somehow, without any official explanation from the Prime Minister's office, is still Defense Minister. So, with everything that's going on, um, looks like Netanyahu basically backed down in the face of protests. And even he, a lot of people in talking about perhaps this escalating into civil war, even Netanyahu said that uh, just to avoid the prospects of a civil war, we're backing down. So the strife in Israel is high. Netanyahu is normally not one to back down, but the fact that he is in this case, even if in a small way, just shows how much pressure he's under. So the United States has not been neutral or silent on these internal protests and this internal political turmoil in Israel. Mr. Zekic, what is the United States' involvement in these Israel protests? Well, there's a lot we don't know. Um, As far as we know, just from public statements from people like uh, Biden, from his ambassador to Israel, Tom Nides, they're just saying they're uh, giving Netanyahu some pressure to stop, as you just heard from uh, Joe Biden right there. The suggestion is that they're doing, shall we say, at least giving veiled threats of some sort to not or to get Netanyahu to stop doing what he's doing. Again, there's a lot going on behind the scenes that we don't know about. But considering, well, for one thing, considering how many prominent Democrats in the United States have talked about expanding the Supreme Court there and all that kind of stuff, them talking about how uh, this is uh, evil of Netanyahu and this is uh, against the principles of democracy is complete hypocrisy coming from them. But from the other hand, this is a an internal issue for Israel. It's a fairly logical one, whether the reforms Netanyahu is putting in will fix anything or perhaps make problems worse is up for debate. But the Israeli court system has needed reform for a long time. The courts have taken so much power in the last 30 years, especially that they were never given. And there are even plenty of people on the left that see some reform needs to be done. And that the United States would be meddling in Israel's internal affairs to the level that comments like from people like Biden and his ambassador suggest show that this is there's something going on here. The current presidency wants the Supreme Court in Israel to stay this unaccountable oligarch, oligarchy that it is. And they, uh, Biden and his puppet master Obama have never liked Netanyahu. Their uh, administrations have overlapped for a long time and they've tried to get rid of him before. And they don't want to see uh, Netanyahu muzzle this really important check on his power, shall we say, in Israel, even if it is a a quasi-legal one. And this is a big term we've written. I'm going to do something that I don't normally do, and I'm going to shamelessly plug something I wrote for the current trumpet. But <laughs> in all, but in all seriousness, it is uh, it it is a good resource to come for current events. We have a new article in our recent print edition, No Helper for the State of Israel, that fills in some of the animosity that the Biden presidency and Obama behind him are doing to 
go after Netanyahu and to marginalize Israel as much as possible. Our editor-in-chief has went to Second Kings uh, 14, a prophecy in there about the name of Israel being blotted out, and verse 28 specifically ties in uh, Judah or the current state of Israel and how they need something recovered and how this force that's blotting out the name of Israel, which Mr. Fleury has pointed to as being spearheaded by Barack Obama, has something against Israel and they're going after Israel and Israel basically needs saving from this satanic pressure. So that would be what our, I would recommend for our listeners. No helper for the state of Israel from the latest print edition. No helper for the state of Israel. That's from the trumpet, the Philadelphia trumpet. You can access that on the trumpet.com and keep watching these relationships between countries, the relationships between Germany and its neighbors there in Europe, the relationship between Asia and the or sorry, Russia and the Asian nations on its periphery. And keep watching this relationship between Israel and the United States. And Mr. Zekich will help you do that. Thank you, Mr. Zekich. Coming up, the biggest nation in the world is openly preparing for war. Meanwhile, a new nation is seeking to join NATO. And finally, using the IRS as a weapon. We'll be right back. Trumpet Hour, the Week in Review. Welcome back to Trumpet Hour. For our next news item, we go back to Asia. Uh, we heard in the first half that Putin, Vladimir Putin, the leader of Russia, is escalating the chances of nuclear war. Mr. Jacques, what would be the second most important thing to come out of Asia besides the increased possibility of nuclear conflict? Yes, well, uh, Chinese leader Xi Jinping has recently reiterated several times that he is preparing China for war. So it's not just Russia. Uh, Xi Jinping has been holding a range of meetings with China's parliament and its main political advisory body as well. And in four separate speeches so far, he has woven this theme in and he's just kept on reiterating this assertion that he is preparing China for war. He He's uh, spoken several times about just an increasingly bleak geopolitical landscape. He's singled out America as China's big adversary. He admonished private businesses to, you know, more fully devote themselves to China's military goals. So those are some of the main points that he keeps coming back to in all of this talk. And there was a uh, some really insightful analysis about this published in Foreign Affairs yesterday. Part of this article said, something has changed in Beijing that policymakers and business leaders worldwide cannot afford to ignore. If she says he is readying for war, it would be foolish not to take him at his word. 
end quote. So, you know, there's still quite a bit of uh, uncertainty surrounding this shift toward a much more belligerent kind of rhetoric. But as Foreign Affairs says there, I think it would be foolish not to take Xi Jinping at his word and just to take this very seriously. And as you say there, it's a sustained message through several speeches, several very bold speeches, several crossings of the line, if you will, uh, versus normal diplomatic uh, dialogue or diplomatic uh, wording. But how far does this go beyond the rhetoric? Can we tell? Yes. Well, yeah, we have to keep in mind that Xi Jinping now has totally unchecked, unchallenged power at the helm of the world's most populous nation. So his words are far from empty. You know, they, they carry considerable power. And we're already seeing all kinds of evidence showing that his words are translating into concrete arrangements. Uh, his government recently implemented a range of new military readiness laws. It has also opened up numerous what are called defense mobilization offices. These are essentially recruitment centers for troops that can be rapidly kind of switched into, you know, mobilization mode. Um, China has also been uh, focusing more and more on building and upgrading air raid shelters across the country, just in numerous cities. On top of all that, Xi Jinping's government recently announced a 7.2% increase in military spending. You know, the, the military spending had already doubled in the last 10 years, and now it'll receive this additional huge increase. So Xi Jinping's preparations for war clearly go beyond just the words. And I think that all these measures show that the foreign affairs writers are exactly right when they say that these threats should be taken very seriously. And the Chinese are a great people. It's almost uh, silly to say that. I mean, throughout history, this is a, uh, a populous nation. This is a great nation that has invented uh, things, developed things, built things. Now this great people in, in our lifetimes has been under, to put it mildly, a controlling government. And now we have one man with unchecked power controlling that government. Uh, in, in the past, we've talked about what do we, what do we even call, which of the titles do we, do we use for the Chinese leader? You see why people call them something like the paramount leader because there's almost no word for the immense amount of, of singular power that this man has. How do you see him wielding that in the near term? Yeah, well, I think really all of this rhetoric and all of these preparations, um, really at the center of the whole story is Taiwan. You know, you talked about China being a great people. They, they want to be an even greater people. They, they want to swallow this other nation of 24 million and add that to their 1.4 billion. And Xi Jinping has often threatened to use military force to conquer Taiwan. And he's really staked a fair amount of his legitimacy on his promise to subdue Taiwan. And of course, he abhors any sorts of move toward stronger Taiwanese independence. And I think it's significant that at the same time that Xi Jinping is making all these threats to go to war, the United States has been selling Taiwan record amounts of weaponry. And then uh, just this week, American leaders are hosting Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen. She's here for a multi-day visit right now. So Xi Jinping views these kinds of moves as 
essentially the most infuriating thing he could imagine. He, he sees it as a direct challenge to his claims of sovereignty on Taiwan. So it all shows, I think, that Taiwan just remains a powder keg, one of the biggest flashpoints on the globe. And I think that we should expect for all of Xi Jinping's rhetoric about war to soon uh, become a reality around that island. Taiwan, of course, never has been uh, subject to the Chinese Communist Party, unlike the the mainland. It is a functioning democracy. It is a, uh, I believe it's correct to say, an ally of the United States. But we're watching the United States support of Taiwan. You mentioned that right now it's very strong. Uh, but I would encourage listeners to go to thetrumpet.com and look up Taiwan Betrayal. Taiwan Betrayal. And uh, you'll see what the trumpet expects based on Bible prophecy to be the case in that uh, conflict between mainland communist China and democratic and democratic Taiwan. So thank you for watching Asia for us, Mr. Jacques. Please continue to do so this week, and we'll look forward to hearing your next update. We move back over to the Middle East now, and we want to hear about Turkey, Finland, and NATO. Yes, so yesterday, the Turkish parliament ratified Finland's NATO bid. Finland and Sweden, ever since Russia invaded Ukraine last year, have been edgy with what's going on. They're just a boat ride away from St. Petersburg. They applied to join NATO in June. But in order to do that, they have to get uh, approval from the legislatures of all 30 NATO members. And this might sound a little bit complicated. Um, For the most part, it wasn't, except for two countries, Turkey and Hungary, who were looking at special concessions, say, from the group. Hungary approved Finland's bid uh, earlier this week, and Turkey just approved, uh, again, their bid yesterday. So, assuming there are no unexpected bumps in the road, Finland is going to be the 31st member of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. With Sweden, it's a little bit more complicated. They uh, have some links with certain Kurdish groups that Turkey doesn't like, and they want to iron those out before uh, letting Finland in, and they probably want some uh, bonuses under the table, too. Uh, You never can tell with uh, the current government in Ankara. But what's the big noticeable thing about this is Finland, you might think it's not that important of a country. It has 5 million people. It's tucked away in a a cold, uh, uh, icy corner of Europe. But they have some military clout for them. Counting reservists, they actually have just under a million military personnel in their army. And that was for the purposes of avoiding a Russian invasion for in the decades since World War II. They share a roughly 800-mile-long border with Russia. So not only would Finland be considered a um, decently sized military they would also be nato's largest border with russia once coming in so it's another one of the after effects after the war a lot of people when the war started thought it'd be over really fast we're seeing tensions rise up in different places uh, some people are speculating is this going to be world war three whatnot our editor-in-chief in the current uh print edition his cover article is called the ukraine war will not start world war three So regardless of what you hear about any rumors that both sides are getting ready to build up, you're seeing Finland come into NATO, whatever, or or some other uh, 
shall we say, rhetoric like that, that um, Mr. Fleury goes into great detail through the Bible on why this particular war will not be what causes ICBMs to start flying across the Atlantic. With that being said as well, there's another important trend that we can focus on here, and that is specifically Turkey's response. Now, the trumpet has predicted for years that Turkey is going to align with Europe. We base that from a prophecy in Psalm 83, which talks about Edom, the ancestral peoples of the Turks, aligning with Asher, the ancestral peoples of the Germans. By extension with that, we could tie in the rest of the European Union, which Finland, of course, is a part of, and most NATO members are a part of as well. And Erdogan... Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, he's been a bit of a, a flip-flopper. He'll he'll play the, we're a NATO member, we're a strong member of the Western Alliance card when it suits him. He's also, at various times, he'll have close relationships with Russia, he'll have close relationships with Iran. He'll flip-flop between supporting Israel and supporting Hamas. He's not particularly a trustworthy guy, and the Europeans haven't put too much trust in him. But we're seeing, as an after-effect of the Ukraine crisis, we are seeing Turkey make some overtures closer to Europe in certain respects, like the Finland uh, membership. There are quite a few things to be ironed out, as is the case when you look at, say, Sweden's membership. Who knows when that's going to go through? But we are seeing Turkey start making closer links with Europe that in recent years, say, we haven't seen. So that would be the most significant thing about that. And if our listeners would like to learn more about Turkey's role in end-time prophecy. We have our recently updated King of the South booklet by our editor-in-chief, Mr. Fleury, that talks about Turkey's role in Bible prophecy and a lot more regarding the Middle East. So that would be what I would recommend as our one-stop shop for listeners if they want to know about what the the Bible says about the modern Middle East and prophecy. That's the King of the South at thetrumpet.com, the King of the South. Uh, a fascinating booklet or book, I should say, just recently updated. And yes, we are talking about World War III. We are talking about NATO, which is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, possibly bumping right up against Russia in Finland, a flashpoint in the last world war. Uh, but we can tell you whether or not this will start World War III. And you're going to want to check out the Ukraine war will not start World War III. As Mr. Zekic mentioned, the Ukraine war will not start World War III at thetrumpet.com. And back finally to the United States. Andrew Miller watches this region for us, and there's a lot to watch uh, in addition to the the, uh, topic you mentioned earlier. What's the second most important thing that you'd say uh, our listeners should look at this week? Yeah, there were... Two big and related stories that happened this week about just political prosecution in the United States. Uh, The first one you've already mentioned briefly, which was the Trump uh, indictment. I don't actually have too much detail to talk about on that today, uh, just because the felony indictment is still sealed, so we don't actually know the specific charges he was indicted on. <laughs> the The one interesting angle I think ties in here is I did see where Nancy Pelosi made a comment that uh, Mr. Trump will have the opportunity to prove his innocence in court, which is traditionally not how the American justice system has worked. Uh, traditionally, it's been to like say you're, the least. <laughs> you're innocent until proven guilty. Now we're moving into a point where they can... Uh, uh, they can 
charge you on a misdemeanor that's past your statutes of limitations, seal it so the lawyers can't look at it, and force you to go to trial to talk about a hush money case. And the point of hush money is that like it's something you didn't want to talk about uh, in order to prove that you're innocent. Like we don't have proof that you committed a crime, but we're going to force you to talk about whatever you paid to not talk about um, in order to like prove to everyone in the nation that you didn't commit a crime. Incidentally, just breaking in, if you were to go from a country where you had an imperfect justice system for sure, but basically innocent until proven guilty to a country a first world country where the conviction rate is 99 percent which is actually the case in china we are right in the middle there we are in the middle and we are headed that way we are absolutely headed that way and uh the investigative journalist uh matt taibbi is also finding this out he's a he's a left-wing journalist or has been traditionally working with elon musk uh, on the twitter files uh, just to expose the massive censorship going on in the u.s government and now we're finding out this week that earlier this month while he was testifying before congress about corruption in the government uh, the irs visited his house left him a note that he was supposed to call them uh, he called them. He was informed that he has two sizable tax returns that have been rejected uh, and was further informed that they were not rejected for any monetary reason. Um, they're rejected because they uh, they were suspecting identity theft, which is about the most passive aggressive way you can go about telling a left wing journalist, what are you doing um, working with republicans on the twitter files not to mention the timing where they came to his house as he was testifying before congress the same day yes actually we will play a clip here from a tax analyst who was uh talking on fox news earlier this week uh about just how wrong this is this is inexcusable in the united states this is frightening this cannot happen uh the i but why would the irs think that they could do this. Well, when somebody in the IRS stole thousands of IRS information uh, and audits and, and so on and handed out to a left-wing group, Publica, uh, nothing was done by the IRS. Nothing was done by the Justice Department. It has been two years since the administration has refused to let people know who did this. They haven't even asked for the material back. So when the IRS goes out and attacks people that the president doesn't like and, and rips their privacy apart, and by the way, hints to everybody else, we can do this to you. Okay, so you, you definitely heard there at the end of that clip that they're like, if they can, if they can do it to Taibbi, uh, they can do it to you. Uh, and, and that man, that analyst came out very strong <laughs> that um, this was uh, something that's just not done in America. This is something like you'd hear in Russia where someone runs in an opposition party to Putin so then gets arrested on tax fraud for that he didn't commit. Uh, this is definitely using the IRS as a weapon against conservative journalists in a very similar way <laughs> like they're using the Manhattan DA's office uh, against Donald Trump. 
is this the first time that we've seen the IRS, uh, which no American likes <laughs> in the first place, but is this, is this the first time we've seen the Internal Revenue Service, the tax collection agency in the United States, used as a political weapon uh, targeting certain people for their for political reasons? Absolutely not. It's probably happened throughout the organization's history, but pretty famously, uh, most of our listeners will probably remember the, the Lewis Lerner case back uh, in the Obama years, which they actually got caught and had to apologize for, uh, where they were saying that like any nonprofit organization with the term patriot or tea party in the name was like bumped up the list for audits. Uh, this Taibi thing might be (laughs) uh, even more blatant than that was. Um, But it's definitely uh, has been a a big problem under the Obama administration as and it's becoming an even bigger problem under the Biden administration. Using the government and its agencies as a weapon, a trend to watch out for. And of course, Matt Taibi, they're testifying before Congress about the Twitter files, which are about the United States government using its agencies as a weapon to target or to manipulate Americans, especially Americans of a certain political stripe. So you'll want to check out what uh, the Trump has written on the Twitter files that Taibbi and others have uncovered. To do that, I encourage you to go to thetrumpet.com. Look for Barack Obama and the Twitter files. Barack Obama and the Twitter files on thetrumpet.com. Thank you for that, Mr. Miller. Keep watching Anglo-America for us. And that is today's Trumpet Hour. I'm Philip Nice. Email us your thoughts on the program to letters at thetrumpet.com. We've received a few emails from you. We appreciate that. We'd like to hear more. And thanks to our panel, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, Mihailo Zekic, and Richard Palmer. And thanks to Parker Campbell and Jesse Hester for engineering and production. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Trumpet Hour.